Well, this week, Catherine and I had the opportunity to be able to celebrate our 10th wedding anniversary. Thank you. Uh, this isn't, isn't like I'm not looking for that. <laughs> uh, we survived 10 years. Catherine survived 10 years. Uh, the anniversary was actually at the beginning of March, but this week we got to celebrate it uh, for a few nights down in Victor Harbour. Uh, a few nights without the kids, which was lovely. Uh, we got to talk, we got to talking, uh, as we occasionally do, uh, and had the opportunity to be able to reflect on the last 10 years, to be able to reflect on one another, and really to be able to see uh, the difference between when we first got married uh, to now, to, to look at one another and see how uh, me and all my unique background and personality and strengths and weaknesses impacted Catherine and her and all of her strengths impacted me, um, and how we shape and change one another. Um, and you have to, because you become one flesh. Uh, to remain independent would be wholly unhealthy for a marriage. Uh, but to be bound together, to find out how you come together, uh, is good. And it was a good time of reflecting. But it made me think how right it is then in a series like this, where we're talking about name above all names, where the bride of Christ reflects upon her bridegroom upon his identity, who he is, his personality, his strengths, his perceived weaknesses. He doesn't have them, but sometimes they're perceived that way. And see how then they impact us and shape us and change us. And they do, just as the bride has shaped, uh, shaped Christ. He didn't need to go to the cross if it wasn't for the bride. Uh, but we have come together as one. And so it's a good thing to be able to spend time looking at who he is. And we spent time over the last few weeks uh, looking at who he is as the seed of the woman, the one who would crush the serpent's head, as the prophet with the word of God in his mouth, as priest and advocate. And this morning we look at him, our bridegroom, as the conquering king. And he is king. And my prayer this morning is that we would see him as not just a king of 2,000 odd years ago, but as a present and current king of his bride, of his people and of an existing kingdom that we are a part of. That it is an ongoing lordship and that we would be refreshed in a willing and a delightful submission to that king as his bride, but as his people as well. So before we go any further, let's pray that God would speak to us this morning, that we would be able to hear his words and that we would have our hearts and minds, uh, any distractions removed from them. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning giving thanks that once again we can come before your word and say, mm, Lord, and just rejoice. Lord, that we get to constantly come before a word of truth that is filled with love, that is filled with wisdom and guidance, that talks of a king who is righteous, of a priest who comes before you, of a prophet that brings your word, and, some, uh, and the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent, Lord, that we would know you, the one whom we are bound to forever, shaped and changed by and the one who is, has come so willingly to us 
uh, to rescue and save us and to make us his. This morning as we hear your word, this Lord, about your son as king, Heavenly Father, open our eyes to what it would mean to follow him. What it really means to follow the king of the cross. Remove from our minds and our hearts any distractions and help keep us clear um, and able to understand what is being said, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, at the time of the Passover feast in Jerusalem, which is where one of our passages is set, Judah has been waiting for a king, a very certain king, for a very long time. Back in King David's day, God made David a promise, which can be found in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that God would bring about and establish a kingdom that would last forever. A kingdom that had never been known before and could only be dreamt of. A kingdom that would last forever. And it would be a kingdom that came through the line of David. From that day, this promise of a forever kingdom and the forever king that accompanied that kingdom was held and brought before Israel again and again and again. In times of trouble, during exile, persecution and judgment, the prophets and therefore God continued to bring the people back to this promise of this king and this kingdom. And it was held as a time and a place when everything would be set right again, made better. And so it was that this king and his kingdom became the great hope of the nation. As we see in Jeremiah chapter 23, it says, The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will live in safety. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. And in Jeremiah 30, On that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will break the yoke from off his neck, and I will burst his bonds, and strangers shall no more make him a servant. But they shall serve the Lord their God, and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. But as for you, have no fear, my servant Jacob, says the Lord, And do not be dismayed, O Israel, for I am going to save you from far away and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease and no one shall make him afraid. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, Amos, Hosea, Isaiah, All prophetic books that continue to bring us back to this promise of a future king and his kingdom. He was not a great hope for Israel. He was the great hope for Israel. The only hope they had of a future that was going to be greater than them being slaves to another nation. 
because this king, they were told, would bring restoration. Bring restoration not just for the tribe of Judah, but for Israel and for the entire world. He would provide protection and safety for the people from all of their enemies and defeating them one by one. And he will rule this kingdom forever, not as a tyrant, but forever in righteousness. Only ever executing justice for the people. It says in Jeremiah that the salvation that will come at the hands of this king will be so great that the people will forget the exodus. They will no longer speak of the Lord's deliverance of Egypt for this new deliverance. The days of the new king. Can you imagine a day greater than the days of the exodus? From Egypt. I mean, this was a time when God made obvious his power to the world, where he brought in clear uh, show his lordship by bringing about taking the smallest of weakest of nations and bringing them to freedom through 10 great plagues that shook the mightiest of nations through leading his people with smoke and fire during the day, through splitting a river so that they could walk on dry ground to be able to cross it to safety, and then wiping that nation, that enemy nation, Israel, uh, really right back down to the bare roots, taking their their army out in one fell swoop. This day that is celebrated again at Passover, which they've come to celebrate, will be forgotten in comparison to the deliverance that this new king will bring. This future king. And so the people waited. They waited for this new king and his kingdom and they waited and they waited and they waited For the days that King David, uh, lost my place, I'm sorry. For the day that King David is prompt, from that day that King David is promised an eternal kingdom until this time at the Passover that we've just read, they have seen kings come and they have seen kings go. Some have been like David that have held the heart of God. Others like Solomon that have had his wisdom and then a myriad of others that have gone the other direction and gone from evil to greater evil from generation to generation. And then as they continue to wait and watch these kings, they then step into exile and the line appears all but lost. The kings are gone. But still the prophets bring about the word of God and promises of a future king in his kingdom, of restoration. Even though their situation has gotten only worse, this king will come. This hope will come. And then silence. Nothing. God stops speaking to the people. There are no more prophets carrying the word of God. But they still have it. They still have the promises that they've been told. 
to hold on to even during silence. There is a king coming. A king of the line of David will come and salvation will rest in his arms. And then after 400 years of silence and waiting in a little town of Nazareth in Galilee, an angel appears to a virgin woman engaged to Joseph, a descendant of David, saying, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you will call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. The long awaited king is here. And as Jesus grew, in particular as he begins his ministry, he displays all of the traits of this king. He has the spirit of God and the blessing of the Father like no other. We've only spoken recently, a few times, of what it meant when he got baptised to come up from the water and see the spirit descend on him like a dove and have a voice from heaven, the Father call out, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. And he speaks the words, heavy with God's wisdom and authority. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teachings because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. And he healed the sick and he freed the possessed, not with complex rituals or sacrifices which were common, He didn't even pray. He said a word and the crippled walked. And withered hands were restored. And eyes could see again. And bleeding stopped. And the dead were raised back to life. And with that same word, he had power over creation. When Jesus and his disciples were in a boat, a furious squall came up. And the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? And what did Jesus the king do? He got up and rebuked the wind and the waves. Quiet, be still. And the wind died down and it was completely still. Now water doesn't just stop moving when the wind dies away. But it did here. It had received a command from its king. All this and so much more Jesus did in the small time that he had here. And people saw it. And they began to believe, here is this long-awaited king. And they began to follow him. To gather around him. This was their hope and their salvation come at last. And so we come at long last to the scripture that we had this morning. Jesus' arrival at Jerusalem at the time of Passover. Only a day before he had raised Lazarus from the dead in front of many people and they were following with him. Perhaps to come to the city 
of Jerusalem to share in Passover, but maybe also just to see what this king would do next. And before Jesus even arrives at Jerusalem, John says, The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And they took palm branches and went out to him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Even before he has arrived, the people are rejoicing over the king that has come. Jesus sends two of his disciples to obtain the use of a young male donkey, the colt, that he may ride it into Jerusalem. Now, for you and I, it's a little anticlimactic. But for the Jewish people, we can see their reaction. As he went along, people took off their cloaks and spread them on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down to meet uh, to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Because they knew of the prophecy of Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem, see your king comes to you. Righteous and victorious, lowly, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The conquering king was here to save his people. The kingdom they had all been longing for, waiting for, had arrived. And they were going to become a changed people, a prosperous people. It says a little later in the prophecy of Zechariah, the Lord their God will save his people on that day. As a shepherd saves his flock, they will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. How attractive and beautiful they will be. Grain will make the young men thrive and new wine for young women. And how right they were to rejoice at the coming of the king. Now, some of the Pharisees, of course, cry out to Jesus, telling him to rebuke his disciples, to put them back in their place for calling him the king. And what does he say? I tell you, if they kept quiet, the very stones would cry out. All of creation rejoices at the coming of this king. What a time this would have been. All that pent up hope and anticipation of generations waiting from the days of David until now. Yet for all the joy and the celebration, there is one who wept. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. He was the conquering king. He would establish his kingdom of peace and it would be the kingdom of God. But it wouldn't be established by him standing over his broken bloody enemies, sword in hand. Not standing over them, but hanging on a cross. 
and the people that even now rejoiced that he was king would reject him. Would reject him as king and the kingdom that he brings because it wasn't what they actually wanted. If we go back a few steps in history to the other reading that we had, we see an example of this very attitude in Jesus' disciples. Travelling to the villages in Caesarea, around Caesarea, Philippi, Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers wisely, doesn't he? You are the Messiah. That is, you are the Saviour, the King, the long-awaited one. The disciples already knew. They've seen so much. And in response to what Peter has said for the first time, they hear Jesus open up and share what it means to be this King. And he speaks of the suffering that must take place and the rejection and his death and his resurrection. And Peter does exactly what Jesus is anticipating everybody else who is celebrating at Jerusalem to do. He denies the necessity of the suffering. Peter denies the need for a cross and the resurrection. And because he denies the cross, he denies Christ, the one he has just called king. It is said that Peter pulled Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. And the rebuke is the same word that they used for rebuking demons. Peter was happy for Jesus to be king and establish a kingdom so long as it was in the way that Peter had in mind. But he wouldn't abide a king that didn't fit his thinking. At this time and in this moment, Peter would not submit to the one that he called king. And Jesus weeps for Jerusalem because it is filled with people, even those that are rejoicing, that will call him king so long as it fits their mould. So long as he looks the way that they want him to look as king. Of a man that will go from strength to strength to strength. Not a man who would willingly suffer the humiliation of the cross. Not a king that would lead them into their own death rather than the death of their enemies. But Jesus was king, not of the kingdom of man, but of God. And he had the wisdom, not of man, but of God. And he seeks to overthrow an enemy far greater and more insidious than the Greeks and the Romans. That of sin and death and the kingdom of darkness. And he fights for his people to have a peace and a safety that is more established and eternal than any high walls or large army could ever create and maintain. That of a peace with God. And now we see in truth that as Christ did endure the necessary suffering, 
and the rejection and the death and the resurrection, that he did it entirely alone. He did not have the fanfare of a kingdom, uh, a people behind him, following him from the gates of Jerusalem to the Mount of Golgotha. Instead, he was surrounded by those who rejected him for his kingship. But he still went for his bride. Jesus, the king, paved the way to a kingdom unlike any that has ever been known. And it was done in apparent weakness and death that leads to eternal life with the father. Thomas Watson once uh, wrote concerning Jesus as king that many would admit Christ to be their advocate, to plead for them, but not their king to rule over them. And we see this in our scripture this morning, don't we? Happy to have a Christ rule if it fits the mould that we have, but not submit to his rule in the way that he would have it. Over the last year sharing in Mobilong prison, I've heard some remarkable testimonies from people that have come to believe. And something that has stood out in a number of them is that each of these testimonies have come in two pieces. First, the men share that they decided to believe in Christ as their advocate, as someone that, that bore their sin, that saved them. But then life never changed. They continued to go in and out of prison. They still struggled with the same things. But then they shared that they had a further growth in their revelation. To see then that Christ wasn't just advocate alone, but he was also their king. That they were to follow him into death to be able to go into his life. And then everything changed for them. These men had to see that Jesus was more than an advocate, but as the one that was truly king and submit to his way of being king, not their own. Jesus said shortly after his confrontation with Peter, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes to his Father's glory with the holy angels. Jesus was the first to die and to rise, making a way for those that wanted to follow him. From death into life. But as he died on the cross, we must also die to ourselves to surrender to the king all of who we are and follow him.
to put to death every pleasure, desire, want for justice, every grudge, security, hope or hatred. And he will rise, raise us back to life. We cannot be like Peter in this passage that sought to remould the king and the kingdom to suit our desires. In our own hope for the king, do we hope and follow the king of the cross or one of our own making? Now, following the king of the cross is a scary thing to do, a painful thing to do. It is death. And it is for me as well. There are so many wants and pleasures and hopes and securities and aspects of life that even I do not want to lose. And I struggle to lay them down at the foot of the cross. And there's a fight between spirit and flesh. And some things that I have laid down that I feel that I quickly run back to the cross to pick up again. And then I lay them down again and pick them up again. And it continues to happen. And I'm afraid in those moments of that struggle that in laying them down and dying to these desires that I have, that in fact I will just become less by laying them, laying them down before the cross. That I will become less by following Jesus. C.S. Lewis wrote this in the last two pages of mere Christianity. The more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let Jesus take over, the more truly ourselves we become. Our real selves are all waiting for us in him. The more I resist him and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my own heredity and upbringing and surrounding and natural desire. In fact, what I so proudly call myself becomes merely the meeting place for trains of events which I never started and cannot stop. What I call my wishes becomes merely the desires thrown up by my physical organism or pumped into me by other men's thoughts. It's when I turn to Christ, when I give myself up to his personality, that I finally begin to have a real personality of my own. Nevertheless, you must not go to Christ for the sake of a new self. As long as your own personality is what you are bothering about, you are not going to him at all. We must get ourselves out of the way to follow our king go to take up our cross turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace that is a song that I've quoted all too many times in sermons and I probably will continue to do so It's in this place, looking at our king, 
the one who would die on a cross alone for us in love with his bride. And following him into his death. That we find peace with God, his kingdom. We find life. But it is only in following the king of the cross, not the king of our own making. Let's pray and give thanks for this king. Heavenly Father, thank you that you sent the king, your son. Thank you, Lord. Lord, that you give us something to be able to hope on. We rejoice now because we have a very real and present knowledge of your son. But what would it be like to live without the hope you've given us? Ah, Not life at all. Heavenly Father, help us to continue to fix our eyes every day upon your Son as the one that we are following. Lord, to be able to see those places where we are trading him for a king of our own making, where we hold on to the way that we want to live and in turn embrace death rather than submitting to our king and taking up life. We give thanks that in our weakness, in our folly, Lord, that in the times where we struggle, even refuse at times to lay these things down and follow you well, that you died on the cross for us. that we do not earn our place in the kingdom. That you made a way for us to be able to enter by faith in your son. But Lord, we pray that we would be able to make the most of the gift that you have given us, of the life that you have given us. And that, Lord, we would be able to speak of it clearly and loudly to those around us. This is no small gift, this life that you have bestowed to us, this peace that we have tasted. Lord, help us not to make it small, but to continue to fix our eyes on you. And live the life that you've given us through your son, the conquering king. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.